the Center for Independent Studies. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is April Palmerly, CEO of the American Chamber of Commerce in Australia. April will be talking to us today about the many roles played by American companies in Australia and the importance of the U.S.-Australia relationship. April Palmerly, how are you? Good morning, Salvatore. I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, thanks for joining us. It's not every day we get a celebrity like you. Uh, American companies employ, and this is what makes you a star, <laughs> American companies employ 420,000 people in Australia on a median salary of $115,000 per year. How did that happen? It's, it's something a lot of Australians are unaware of, the American investment here and the knock-on effects of that investment, the number of jobs that are created by the American companies operating in Australia is really phenomenal. And, and as you said, these aren't low-paying minimum right. wage jobs. These are professionals in, in um, highly sought-after, high-level positions on good salaries, and, and they're doing... Um, technical work, their managers. Um, yeah, it's a it's a very important part of the economy. Now, we, are we just talking a bunch of Americans who are shipped over to Australia to take all of the high wage jobs away from the locals? It's a good question. No, it's, that's absolutely not the case. Um, the big American companies, for example, Boeing, has its biggest footprint outside of the United States here in Australia. They have four thousand people really? working in Australia. What's Boeing doing doing here in Australia? Both of their businesses, the defense business and the commercial airline business, they're they're making parts for their okay. training. Um, but um, I asked the former CEO of Boeing how many Americans there would be and, and she said she could probably count them on her hands. A really, really? small number of the people working. Same thing um, for someone else in, in an investment bank, um, one American that I know of in, in a multinational investment bank. So I think probably in the 60s, it was more um, sending people into the country to do the jobs, right. but now it's, it's very much jobs for Australians in Australia. So uh, that's a big contrast to the usual China model. Now, I, I have to be honest, I don't know what China's doing here in Australia. But I know that in most countries, because I, I myself study you know, Belt and Road and China's uh, engagement with the world, and in most countries, when China invests, it sends the parts, it sends the plant, it sends the people. It, it's, it's an all-Chinese operation, and it's almost like a, a little bit of China in the country. And, and locals complain that they don't even purchase local goods, you know, nothing. It's just China comes in, build a bridge and leaves. And it sounds like that's not at all what happens with U.S. investment in Australia. Yeah, that's that's very true. I, I haven't seen that in Australia, but we have taken trips to other countries where I've seen what you're talking about, where everything down to the last screw and grain of rice is right. shipped in and doesn't create a lot of um, knock-on effects for the local economy. That's, that's clearly not the case. Americans right. have been working in Australia. American companies have been collaborating here in Australia um, for over 100 years. Um, it really ramped up during World War II, but there were American investments here well before that. So over 100 years of two-way trade and investment. It's, it's not just the American investment in Australia. There's a really sizable Australian investment in the United States as well. Right. 
right? And we all we all know our, our good friend Rupert Murdoch <laughs> as a big investor in the U.S. Right, in media, of course. Um, the yeah. other person who um, was really prominent during the state visit in September when the president invited Prime Minister Morrison over was Anthony Pratt who made a very uh, public announcement that he would be opening a lot of Vizzy Pratt Industries cardboard plants in the United States, creating American jobs, making a big investment. Um, and then, uh, you know, there are other companies as well. There's Atlassian, there, there are tech well, companies as well as manufacturing. And Australians might be surprised to hear that the United States is dotted with Westfield shopping centers. Everybody knows Westfield in the United States. Even the town I grew up in near near Washington D.C. has a Westfield shopping center. So that was that was massive when the Lowys brought Westfield to the United States. But right. but now it continues with things like CSL and Afterpay, and there are a lot of other Australian companies operating in the United States. Right. And I was surprised to hear you say that Australia is tied into American. Oh, well, that Australia is tied into production networks that span the Pacific. Because if there's a shortcoming to the Australian economy, to my mind, it's it's a reliance on primary products exports. You know, entirely reliant on uh, agricultural exports and minerals exports, and that Australia is not really tied into trans-Pacific production networks. And I was really surprised to hear you mention that parts are being made in Australia for Boeing planes. Is there a lot of that kind of advanced industrial integration going on? Yeah, I think there are 35 Australian companies that make parts for the F-35s. Are you um, serious? But, but you're right. There was a study that came out of Harvard that recently said Australian exports are are dumb, that they should be more complex, more value add contributed right. here. And, and I think that's where we will be going. Certainly the 29 years of uninterrupted economic growth has centered a lot on the um, primary exports that we've made, but there's a push now to, um, to change that, I think. Right. Right. Look, uh, I'm just curious, but, you know, I, I'm an American in Australia, but I've never been to AMCAM. Of course, I know that there are American chambers of commerce all around the world, but it's not something I've ever been involved in. Um, if not people like me, if not, you know, American expats in Australia, who are your members? That, that's a good question. When I lived in Hong Kong, the AmCham there was much more for the expats, for people who didn't speak Chinese, couldn't go to Chinese language theater, couldn't go to a museum and understand what was on display. It was it was much more of a, a social unit for expats living in a foreign country. In Australia, we're very culturally similar to the United States. Obviously, we we speak the same language, similar levels of education, healthcare similar interests. So when an American lands at Kingsford Smith Airport, the first thing he says is not, oh my God, I need to find somebody who speaks English and, <laughs> and knows how to get me in to talk to the minister. Um, right. it's, it's much more about facilitating two-way trade and investment. So um, we have different kinds of companies. All of our members are companies. We don't have individual memberships like AmCham's in other countries. Um, so the, the kinds of companies that we have are, first of all, the ones you would expect, the big American multinationals like Coca-Cola or um, ExxonMobil. Um, and then there's what we were just talking about, the Australian companies who are doing business in the U.S., like Vizzy or um, uh, Afterpay and, and companies that 
were founded in Australia and have expanded to the United States. And then there's this third group of companies, which surprised me when I came on board. They're the ones who um, are very happy to be in Australia, employing Australians. They don't want to expand to the United States. They don't necessarily even want to travel to the United States, but they would very much like to get involved with American business, um, whether that's getting into the supply chain. As you said, I, I, the former premier of Tasmania invited a group of AmCham companies to come down to Hobart, and we met a bunch of really innovative companies around the defense sector. And they would love it if some of the American defense primes would buy their inflatable slides to, to go on Right. naval ships or, or carnival cruise lines would buy them or um, just get into that supply chain but remain very, very Australian. So it's a very interesting mix and, and about half of our companies are quite small, under 50 people. So a lot of startups and entrepreneurs who want to learn how to expand to the United States because the U.S. really is the best market for any Australian company that's thinking of expanding the combination. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, please, please. Well, for me, I think the combination of high growth and low sovereign risk is right. is what you find in the United States. Obviously, Asia is closer and there's a lot of growth potential because of numbers, but the sovereign risk is very high. Um, right. Europe has low sovereign risk, but also recently low growth possibilities. The United States, there's a lot more opportunity there. So these these startups, these companies with exciting exciting products and innovations they want to look to the United States and that's that third group of companies. Right now I heard you mention parts earlier and then just now you mentioned things that I, I never would have thought of like making slides for you know, exit slides for airplanes and those of us in academia because the data are produced in just essentially three sectors you you know you talk about services manufacturing and agriculture and we kind of have this this bird's eye view of the economy it strikes me that you're really in the nitty gritty of the economy. I mean, what kinds of, I think it's just fascinating to hear what, what kinds of products are your members making? Do you have a, a master list of some kind or can you just give us some, some illustrations of the sorts of things we're talking about? Yeah, it is. It is fascinating to, to dig down into what people are doing. As you would know, you've been here long enough to know the different um different industries that are strong in different states around the country. So in South Australia, we see a lot in the um, wine and food sector. Defense also is, is very heavy there. And it varies by state, obviously. There's a lot of oil and gas in, in um, WA and in Queensland. But some of these new products are just fascinating. Like you said, some of it is around innovation and it's, it's um, uh, different programs, different um, kinds of cybersecurity. That's that. That's where I think Australia is really going to be a good partner for the United States because we have a highly educated, English-speaking, early adapting culture. We're really, right. really good at innovation in Australia. Where we, where we fall down is on the commercialization of innovation. I think we're the second worst in the OECD in terms of commercializing the innovation right. that we create here. So that's where I think we can really partner with the United States to get those innovative ideas into the commercial sector. Well, I'm interested you mentioned innovation because... Uh, personally, I, I've become really interested in technology networks and uh, uh, specifically online networks and how they're operating. And I noticed that Australia is 
you know, is very much a creative country and is very much um, you know, involved in creating content for online networks, creating, of course, television content, exports lots of TV stars. Uh, do, you have any, do you have any feel for the creative industry in Australia and how it gets tied electronically into the world? I mean, do, do you work with that at all? Um, well, uh, the CEO of Fox Studios was on one of our calls yesterday, All and he right. was talking a bit about it. Certainly Julie Bishop, when she was the minister in charge of topping up the film industry subsidies, okay. she talked a lot about it. Um, Australia doesn't offer a blanket um, subsidy. Like so, right. I, I used to live in Canada, and, and it was um, right. more more of a robust business there. But on a case by case basis, there are incentives for films to be produced here, and that's one of the things that they're grappling with right now. There were a lot of films and TV shows under production right. when COVID struck. Well, of course, and we so all know, you know you're you're halfway through filming. The, the world's most famous COVID patient, Tom Hanks, uh, was here, <laughs> of course, and uh, filming. Uh, what was the film? Uh, do, you, do you remember the? Oh yeah, what was that? Not Mr. Rogers, was it? I think it was maybe, yeah. and uh, of course. So do you think that's uh, helped or hurt Australia's film prospects? <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I, I think Australia's become a, a great location for American films, especially, and so we had The Great Gatsby here, which was beautiful. Of course, that was a joint U.S. Australia production, if I remember correctly. Mm. Um, but I'm also interested in, in the online networks because I know Google has a big presence in Australia. Netflix is rapidly expanding in Australia. Um, what is What are the U.S. tech giants doing here? Yeah, they, they are here and they're well integrated into the economy. They'd like to do more here. Honestly, there's a lot of opportunity for those companies. We're having a committee meeting uh, next week on the digital okay. landscape here in Australia. Um, they, um, they provide a lot of services, not only in Australia, but around the world. The, this talked about consumer surplus, all the stuff that we would be willing to pay for if we had to, like uh, Google Maps and right. uh, LinkedIn and, and all these things that we get for free on our phones right. that are actually quite a service to us. There's there's a big part of the economy that is provided for free by these companies. Right. I'm going to ask you in a minute about research and development in Australia and what's going on in R&D. But first, I have to take a minute to remind everyone, if you'd like to ask questions, we're going to go to questions in just a few minutes. Please, questions in the text box in YouTube. If you go to the chat window in YouTube, you can ask questions there. Also, if you're watching live on Facebook, we can also take questions via Facebook, but it's a little more cumbersome. If you're on YouTube, great. Just throw the questions in the chat box and I'll get to them as soon as I can. Also, I'd like to remind you, this is an effort of the Center for Independent Studies here in Sydney. The CIS accepts no government funding whatsoever, and that means no job keeper. <laughs> and that has put a real strain on CIS during the current crisis. So if you are able to contribute, we of course really appreciate it. More importantly, Press the subscribe button. Also become a member of CIS. So if you go to cis.org.au, don't forget the .au or, or you get an American uh, immigration website. But if you go to cis.org.au and you see the green logo, cis.org.au, you can uh, become a member. It is only $40 to become a member at the basic membership level. And I'll be honest, I'm a member at the basic membership level don't tell them I said this, but that's really all you need. Uh, you pretty much get everything at the basic level. Unless you want hard copies of reports, go ahead, become a member for $40. We'd really love to have you. And it justifies CIS putting the resources in 
to keeping me on the air. So I'd really like to stay here. I don't make any money from this podcast, but I really do appreciate the opportunity to get to do it. Um, April, I'd like to ask you about uh, research and development. What kind of research is going on in Australia sponsored by U.S. companies or, or U.S. organizations? You would be amazed at the kinds of research and the level of research. There is a billion dollars a year spent by American companies in Australia doing R&D, and that is across every sector. Obviously, the big ones that, we, that we've that we talked about are, are defense, um, oil and gas, pharmaceuticals, the health industry, but there there's research going on at all levels, some private, some in conjunction with universities, some through CDCs. It's, it's really all, all across the world, uh, all across the spectrum um, of what can be deemed research and development because um, there is protection of intellectual property here in Australia. Right. It's a safe place to operate. Um, we're part of Five Eyes, uh, so there's a lot of defense research that can go on here because um, the United States, Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand are this trusted partnership. And so we can, we can do very high-level research with our trusted partners. Right. And I know in the universities, uh, I've been shocked to find out that Australian academics even get grants from the from DARPA, the, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency in the United States. Uh, that seems to me incredible that the U.S. trusts Australians even so far as to put sensitive defense research into Australian hands, which I was very surprised to hear. Uh, how strong is that defense connection between the U.S. and Australia? Well, um, 100 102 years ago, there was an Australian general, Sir John Monash, who wound up leading Americans into battle in northern France. And that has continued. Australia is the only country in the world that has fought with America in every major battle since 1918. So it's a real distinction. Uh, obviously, in, in uh, more recent times, Prime Minister Howard was in Washington, D.C. on 9-11. And he was the first world leader to pledge support for President Bush. Mm -hmm. And that was the start of the, the talks about the free trade agreement. But you're absolutely right. Um, you, you have an appointment at University of Sydney, and, and I used to work there, so I know that example really well. There, there is a lot of research that goes on there that is funded by the Defense Department for um, for sensitive topics. And, and Australia is a great magnet that brings people together from the Five Eyes to do this kind of research in a, in a trusted, secure environment. Right. And I think trust is the key word there, because I hear a lot from my colleagues in international relations about how perhaps Australia should dial down the U.S. relationship, reorient towards China. We see Victoria trying to join China's Belt and Road. And I just don't think the level of trust is there in the Australia-China relationship that you see in the Australia-U.S. relationship. The Australia-U.S. relationship is, is long, historical, it's deep. Um, when, when we're talking about this kind of investment that comes to Australia, companies that get set up here, factories that are built, people who are employed, production lines that are created, that is really long-lasting. It's very different from a trading relationship that a country might have with, with its neighbors, which can be and, and has been in many cases just stopped overnight because of coronavirus or political changes. The kind of relationship that the U.S. and Australia has is right. unique, I think. So and put, putting your life in the hands 
of a foreigner, that is something that you don't hear about. That military trust is unique. I mean, there's nothing Donald Trump could say that would cause American companies to pull out of Australia. Uh, the the companies make their own decisions. Right. It, it's not a uh, uh, and which is a command very economy. Different. <laughs> very different from some other parts of the world. Look, uh, Richard is watching, and he is a fan of American commercial acumen, and he wants to know: Can the United States teach Australia how to commercialize its ideas? I think there's um, there's a lot that we can learn from each other. Um, I took a group to the United States led by Robin Denholm, who's the chair of Tesla, and Maureen Doherty, who is the head of Boeing. And um, we went to Seattle, San Francisco, and Silicon Valley to really look at how innovation happens. It's been quite interesting for me, especially these last two months when we've been sitting at home. You know, it's for some people it was their dream to get to work from home <laughs> in, in their in their trackies and their UGG boots every day. But when we went to San Francisco, traffic was unbelievable. And I said to one of the people, this is, um, you know, innovation HQ. Can't everybody work from home here in San Francisco? And I was told that companies like IBM tried that 20 years ago, and they came to realize that you need to be in the same room, in the same office, bumping into each other, right. having, having conversations to make this kind of thing happen. Um, so that, that was one thing that I learned from the trip. But the other thing that I learned is that Americans embrace fast failure, and they see failure as a step in an right. iterative process towards success. So I, I met one guy who told me that he had had an investor um, who lost all his money. He had a great idea, but it didn't work out and the investor lost all his money. The investor came back to him and said, well, what's your next great idea? And the guy said, well, why do you want to hear my next great idea? You just lost $50 million on me. And the investor, <laughs> the investor said, I just invested $50 million in your education. You better believe I want to know what your next idea is. Um, so I see, I see people putting three failed startups on their resumes in California, whereas in Australia, I don't see people talking as much about things that haven't worked out. Um, that might be because of this three decades of economic growth that we've talked about, that people could be more complacent or feeling like, well, if it's not broke, let's not try and fix it. Um, but it could also be a little bit um, of our legal system that needs to be adapted in terms of um, not trading whilst insolvent. I think a lot of companies in California wouldn't be around if they couldn't trade whilst insolvent. <laughs> but here in Australia, that's that's illegal. If you're oh, on a really? board. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, so there's some there's some differences. Um, you don't just file for bankruptcy in Australia the way you would in America and start over. Uh, if you're on a board of a company that fails, then you're blacklisted. So so there are some legal impediments to taking risks here that that I'd like to see change a bit. But I think a bit more risk taking, both in terms of the innovation, but then in terms of investing in innovative ideas. Israel also has a bit more of that culture. Well, they'll invest in a hundred things knowing that only a handful will succeed, but but expecting that kind of an outcome. So um, we've partnered with the Australia-Israel Chamber of Commerce as well, and, and we're hoping to go to Israel once the borders reopen. Oh, wow. So hopefully we can, we can bring all those learnings together from the three countries. Now, Chris wants to follow up on what you said about the F-35. Uh, he says that you know, F-35 parts are being made in Australia, but Donald Trump has been talking about bringing tech manufacturing back to the U.S. Is that going to affect Australia's F-35 program? 
You know as much as I do about that one, Chris. I don't have any inside information <laughs> on it. I've, I've read the same stories, and I hope that we will continue to, um, to have discussions about that. Certainly, um, politicians all over the world say certain things, and then um, depending um, on circumstances, some of them come to fruition and some of them don't. So um, I think this president has, has uh, proven that we need to look at what he does, not just what he says, but um, really the, the actions speak louder than words for, for many politicians and, and leaders. Right, right. Now, Richard is, wants to push us still. He doesn't think you answered the question on commercialization. You talked a lot about failure and innovation, but I think what he's talking about is taking products that have been developed in Australia to market and actually getting those products commercialized out there and, and selling. Do you see a, a, any kind of gap in Australia's ability to commercialize its ideas? And if so, what can it learn? Um, I have seen some angel investors and some venture capital coming over here to Australia, so there may be more opportunity. AmCham is looking at whether we can provide some, some opportunities um, through an innovation alliance. Um, Will Hodgman is now leading the Business Growth Fund, which is for companies that are already successful, obviously. Um, in South Australia, David Vorsheim, who used to run Uber, is now the head of the Venture Capital Fund for startups um, in South Australia. They also have a chief entrepreneur in South Australia, and I think there's one in Queensland as well. So there are some efforts to try and help Australians commercialize some of the innovation here, and, and AmCham is going to try and play a role in that. Right. Now, as I would have expected, the U.S.-China competition is a hot topic, and we're being asked by Simon. Uh, he wants to know uh, how and where uh, should Australia look towards, uh, I'm sorry, in what ways can Australia look towards the United States instead of China in building its future business relationships? Uh, what's the U.S.-China offer, so to speak? Um, well, I think that we have exported a great deal to China, obviously. I think they used as much cement in two years as the United States used in 20 years. It's, it's just the scale is massive, and, and we've, we've got a lot of exports that go to China, and that's an important part of the economy. But I think the future for Australia is very much in innovation and technology, um, and that's along the west coast of the United States. We're bringing out a paper in the next month or so in conjunction with the Bay Area Council in Silicon Valley, looking at the specific areas that are ripe for investment and trade between the United States and Australia. When you talk to the next generation here in Australia, the, the, the 20 and 30 year old people who are the rising stars in their companies, their organizations, departments, they are really interested in the, the high tech companies, the, the companies that dominate the NASDAQ and um, are the biggest companies in America and that's largely focused on the West Coast there. So I think that that kind of interaction is, is the future because regardless of what happens in, uh, in politics or um, climate change, you know, Australia's resources are limited, they're finite and at some point you know, they will run out. So looking to what we can do that we have an unlimited amount of that's our innovation our intelligence our um our new in business and and that's where we can connect with the united states i think and really grow the economy and create jobs 
right. Now, Max is, wants to ask you an unfair question. <laughs> he wants to ask you for a political opinion. I know. Uh, he wants to know, how do you think that the this year's presidential campaign will differ from previous years because of the coronavirus, social distancing measures, etc.? You know, lack of political rallies. Do you think we're going to see a different kind of election? We won't ask you for a prediction, but a different kind of election than we've had in the past. Um, yeah, I think we might. Um, having, uh, if, if we still have the social distancing and we don't have um, national conventions, I think that will probably hurt the Democrats more because they need to come together and coalesce into a single voice because they're the party that's had many different options on the table and been, been pulling each other apart a bit in order to right. get to their one candidate. So I think it's an important national unification practice for the party that's out of power to have that that convention so it that'll be a downside for democrats i think that if we still have a lot of illness and um and complications in getting out the vote in november that could that could play out in a few different ways as you may know um in america it's not a holiday the day that we vote right. it's a regular tuesday it's in the dark, you know, it's November, it's the, right. it's winter, it's cold in most places. Um, and if you have lost one of your jobs, if you're a single mom with three different jobs and you don't get paid if you don't show up, then you're not going to want to go and stand in a, in a queue that goes three miles down the road. If you're elderly or infirm, you're not going to be keen to go and stand with a whole bunch of other people and, and get germs. Um, so it could play out in a lot of different ways. The Democrats really have to get the vote out, but we're going to have to wait a few more months to see what the situation is in, in the United States in terms of the actual voting procedures. Right. In terms of the results, I think that is still going to re rely a lot on the economy, like it always does. Right. If you look two years before any election, if the economy is going well, the incumbent is typically returned. Right. So if we have a V-shaped recovery, I think that's a victory for Trump. Right. If we have an L-shape, you know, where we've gone down and stayed yeah. down, a recession, I think that's a loss for Trump. And if we have more of a U or even a W, but, but more of a U-shaped right. economy like a bathtub, then it's uncertain. I think it could go either way. Right. Now, I don't want to give Australians such a dim view of American voting procedures. In fact, you know, most U.S. states have moved very aggressively towards uh, mail-in ballots. So a lot of people aren't waiting in line. They just mail in their vote. And I will point out that voter turnout, which is entirely voluntary in the United States, was higher in the 2018 election than it's been in any midterm election since the turn of the 20th century. So People are getting out there and voting. We'll see you in 2020, but I think people are going to be really excited. And if they don't want to go stand in line, they're going to mail in their ballots. We'll, we'll see. I, I would take any bet on voter turnout for 2020 that it's going to set a new record. We'll and that would be in the mid-50s? <laughs> Is no, that right? Mid-50%? I think we'll be high this year. Look, Mike from Pittsburgh, uh, and and shout out to our American viewers. Mike in Pittsburgh uh, uh, appreciates you mentioning that elections aren't a holiday. He wants the day off. Uh, he thinks that mail-in voting could be riddled with problems. Now, I know you're not primarily following U.S. politics. You're here to talk about American business in Australia. But do you have any views on that? I mean, should uh, we have an election day holiday? 
Well, Salvatore, as you and I have learned, living here in Australia, I'm now a dual citizen. I, I am an Australian voter, so I've been to vote in Australia. It's on a yeah. weekend. It's at a right. local public school. They have jumping castles. They have a cake stall. There's a barbecue with sausages. Uh -huh. It's a really fun community, community day. Event. Oh, wow. And and I would love that if, if we had that in the United States, made it more of a uh, an activity for people to really get out and... and uh, more than just a duty or an obligation or privilege of, of citizenship, a real um, opportunity to see your neighbors and, and get involved with your community. Um, certainly, we had, um, we had a postal plebiscite here in Australia for marriage equality that was very expensive, but much lower fraud or fraud potential than any of the online um, systems that we've seen hacked. Obviously, the, the census was, was a major one for us. I think it would be a, a massive undertaking to do um, postal voting all across America. And it does get rid of that sense of community that I was talking about that I enjoy so much in Australia, where you get out, you see your neighbors, you talk to them, and it's, it's part of everybody coming together. Because for the people watching in America who don't know this, voting in Australia is compulsory. You have to go and vote, or at least show up and tell them that you're there, even if you don't want to vote for anyone. Otherwise, you get fined. So it's a very different system. Right, right. I, I want to get back to the U.S.-China relationship and how that affects Australia. There's that famous, uh, there's that famous quote that when there are many variants on it, but when the elephants fight, it's the grass that gets trampled on. Is Australia going to be caught? in that US-China rivalry and hurt economically as a result. For instance, we've seen the tariffs on Australian barley exports that are tied to you know, Australia's uh, lobbying for an independent investigation of the origins of the coronavirus crisis. Of course, Donald Trump has also been calling for an investigation of the coronavirus crisis. I, I mean, do US-China relations really matter for Australia's economic prospects? Um, well, first of all, there are, I think the count is now 130 countries that have backed calls for an independent inquiry into the um, origins of the virus that started in Wuhan. So it's, it's much broader than just the United States and Australia. Um, certainly, Australia and the United States have a very robust relationship. You'll remember they signed a free trade agreement, I guess, about the time you moved over here, 2004, right. 2005. And that means that 97% of goods and services um, are, are coming into Australia tax and tariff free. Um, yeah. And trade has tripled in those 15 years. It's been a remarkable stimulant to trade and investment between the United States and Australia. And that's not just a load of iron ore being sent to the US, right? These are no, complicated, no. interesting yes, products, yes. right? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and um, as we talked about earlier, Australia has its own relationship with China. So I think Australia has actually um, played its cards very well to keep good relations with both countries, um, calling out bad behavior when they see it, but making sure that Australian jobs and national security go hand in hand and, and they make sure that, um, that investments are uh, considered, you know, we've seen the change in the FERB requirements. The threshold has been lowered to zero now, and time frames expanded out to possibly six months to review. Now, the what decision. requirements? You'll have to. Uh, uh, 
foreign investments into Australia used to um, be able to pass through without official review if they were under a certain level, a million dollars. And now any foreign investment in Australia by any country needs to be um, signed off on by the Foreign Investment Review Board. The Australian Treasurer, Josh Josh Frydenberg, met with the head of FERB and made that decision to ensure stability and security for Australia in these very unusual times during COVID. Um, So um, the the role that Australia has um, played in terms of deciding what's right for Australia is really important. Australia was the first country to say that Huawei would not be involved in their 5G. That was ahead of when the United States made that decision. And um, AmCham is very interested in those discussions because that bifurcation of technology is going to play a big role in um, in all of our countries going forward, whether you're using a, a Huawei system or a system that's, that's used in other countries is going to play a big role because we're seeing um, rules coming out of the United States, especially in terms of who gets funding and whether or not you can use a network that, that's using Huawei. Um, so Australia's done done a very good job of of um, balancing both of its important relationships, I have to say. And, and I'm hopeful that the U.S.-China trade war does not impact us, but I have faith that our, our leaders will find a way through whatever happens. Now, we have three questions on deck. We're going to go through them very rapidly before we wrap up here. Uh, I do want to mention first, you know, if you're listening for the first time, please do press the subscribe. Also, we'd love to have you as a member at the CIS. So cis.org.au, click the red uh, d- uh, membership button, and it's only $40 to become a member at the most basic level. Look, we'd love to have you as part of the family. Become a member. You'll get newsletters. You'll get announcements of upcoming events and upcoming On Liberty shows. Uh, so I have a few quick questions. First, I've been making fun of Australia's digging itself up and selling itself to China. I know that's not fair, but Chris wants to ask, about U.S. interest in Australian rare earth metals? And could Australia become a player again in the rare earths marketplace? Critical minerals are a big topic. It was brought up in the meeting between President Trump and Prime Minister Morrison when they met in Washington, and it continues to be a real focus. Um, Australia has several of the minerals that... um, they're called rare earths. They're not actually that rare, but but right. um, these critical minerals that we have, um, and there's um, a lot of conversation between Australia and the United States on how we can secure those um, elements that are so important. You think, exa- for example, of all the electronic electric vehicles that are being produced. A, a Tesla uses ten times more copper than a regular car. We're going to need a lot of these strategic minerals going forward, and it's it's very sensible not to have all of your supply coming from one country, especially one that um, isn't allied or, or sharing the same values. And that one country today is China. Uh, look, Prasad wants to follow up on IT. He's particularly interested in IT recruitment, which he thinks needs a big overhaul in Australia. Do you know that if American companies are innovating in recruitment in Australia, are you aware of any involvement from U.S. companies in recruitment, recruitment and specifically IT recruitment? Uh, 
Well, one of the interesting things that came out of a policy meeting that we had, AmCham met with Immigration Minister David Coleman, and we were talking to him about how much investment there is here, how many people are employed by America, American companies. And we told him that one of the big barriers to more investment and more jobs was the visa system of the hundred different okay. visas and getting rid of the three, five, seven, four, five, seven visas so quickly. And so the minister took that on board and he has created these genius visas and he has five people or five offices. I need, I need to get one of those. <laughs> <laughs> You're here already. They, they already deemed you appropriate. Um, but there are, there are five offices around the world that are specifically looking for people in cyber and quantum ag tech, med tech, different areas of technology and recruiting them to come to Australia on special visas that can be renewed, that get passed through very, very quickly. Again, we're, we're living in a time where there is no international immigration, much less international travel. But as COVID clears up and, and immigration restarts, I expect to see that really bearing fruit and bringing in a lot of people who can teach and learn um, from what goes on here, but also bring, bring skills that have been developed in other countries to Australia and, and make it easier to recruit the kind of people you need in IT. All right. Now, we're about to wrap up in a minute. I'm going to get to Kate. Your question's coming, but I just have to ask one question about visas. I know before the crisis hit, the waiting time for a student visa was only like two to three days, while the waiting time for a partner visa, romantic partner, was more like two to three years. Where do business visas fit in between that? I mean, if you need to, if you're trying to come to Australia for uh, on skills, or if a company needs to move a staff member to Australia, two to three days, two to three years. Um, Where are we fitting? I'm not. I'm not an expert on that. That's done by the embassy and the consulate. But from what I'm hearing from companies, it's it's in between that. It's usually could be as little as 30 days. It could be two or three months. But um, right. these new these new visas, these fast track visas, can be done in under a week. Okay, that's good to hear. Uh, final question uh, from Kate. Kate wants to know more about. And I know this is your. Favorite topic, so you won't mind this question at all. She wants to know more about U.S. investment in Australia. She said she was surprised to hear that the, that the United States is the biggest foreign investor in Australia. Do you have any final thoughts on uh, the size, scope, prospects for American investment in Australia? It is amazing, Kate. Australia has a trillion dollars invested here from the United States. Oh, the, oh okay, yes. Uh, U.S. investment in Australia is a trillion dollars in Australia. Australian next, dollars or U.S. dollars? Australian. Okay. Um, and <laughs> the, the next biggest is the U.K., which is $535 billion. China oh. is $65 billion. Wow. So you look at that delta, it's it's enormous. But as I was saying earlier to Salvatore, there's a lot of Australian investment in the United States. You know, we all, for those of you in America who don't know this, there's a compulsory superannuation fund. It's a mandatory retirement fund that every Australian working um, has set up for them. And so there's this big pool of money. Australia is a small population. We have 25 million people, which is the 55th biggest population in the world. Our economy is pretty good. We have the 14th biggest economy in the world right after South Korea. But because of this superannuation fund, we have the fourth biggest pool of capital in the world. It's a massive amount of money. And a lot of that flows to the United States to invest in infrastructure projects, 
shopping centers, all the things that we've been talking about today. So I want to be sure that Australians understand it's not just Americans investing in Australia. Right. It's that two-way relationship. Australia is is returning the investment um, and, and creating jobs in the United States and trading with, um, with the United States very, very heartily. Right. I mean, we all know that Australia exports its actors. Oh, and there's some more of the uh, acting talent behind you, I see. Uh, Australia exports its, uh, you know, its actors and its creative people to the United States. But, uh, you know, even I was really unaware how much Australian investment is going towards the United States. So it's not just a one-way street that the U.S. comes to Australia, but Australia goes to the United States as well. Yeah, yeah. Americans... Um are also largely unaware of the impact that Australia has on the United States, but we're trying to increase that. That's why I'm here today talking with you. We want to make sure people understand because sometimes I feel like American investment in Australia is like the wallpaper. It's all around you, but you stop noticing it. So I want to be sure that people understand it and acknowledge it and, and, um, make sure that they appreciate the role that it plays in the Australian economy. It's a big part of the Australian economy. We're going to release a report with Deloitte that quantifies exactly what the American investment in Australia does and what percentage of the Australian economy depends on investment from the United States. So watch for that next month. All right. Well, April Palmerly, thank you very much for joining us from the American Chamber of Commerce in Australia. Appreciate you having me on the show. Uh, I'd like to also thank our producer, Emily Holmes, our executive producer, Max Hawk Weaver, and of course, the director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. Thanks all of you for watching. Please do subscribe, click the like button, like button. And April, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. Take care, everyone.